Hello and welcome back to the Guns on Pegs podcast. Thanks once again for joining us. If this is your first time, do make sure you go back and listen to the first few episodes. We had a lot of fun making them. And if you've been with us from the start, congratulations and welcome back. Once again, I'm joined by Chris Horn, Managing Director and Founder of Guns on Pegs. Chris, how's it going? I'm good, thanks, George. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, you can probably hear me now as well. How, how am I sounding? I was going to say, it sounds less like you're phoning in from the 1970s this time. Yeah. You've got your fancy new microphone. <laughs> no, 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 not that at all. I was just taking lockdown really seriously and I was in a deep hole. Uh, so I, I'm out of that now. And I've got, yes, no, I secretly have a fancy new microphone that was in the office all along. So no, we're all good. Uh, and the sunny weather's come back. So all good. Excellent. And we have another special guest today. Chris, can you tell us who that is? We do. This is a really exciting one. He'll hope me for saying that. But uh, no, I'm really excited to have with us Tim Woodward, who many of you will know as the Chief Exec of the Country Food Trust. And of all days, this is an awesome day to have Tim with us because literally only a few hours ago, Tim announced that the Country Food Trust had delivered its one millionth meal to people in need. I'll let Tim explain more, but it's absolutely awesome to have you here today, Tim, and so exciting. Yeah, yeah. welcome along, Tim. Thanks very much indeed for having me on. That's absolutely fabulous. Thank you, George, and thank you, uh, Chris. Yeah, it's been a um, quite a build-up. Uh, we started, our first meals were sent out in March 2016, and we sent 2,000 meals out to um, Fair Share in Bristol, this amazing charity that distributes to other charities and then to um, people in need. And yesterday, we delivered our one millionth meal. Um, we just got confirmation today to the exact same place. So some serendipity there that um, the people that received it first um, have received the millionth meal. But um, it's been an amazing day. And um, we've been on social media all day. We've had the great fortune of uh, the Duke of Cambridge helping us announce the millionth meal. So, yeah, hell of a day. That's really exciting stuff. And and I think that that means that uh, in a change to your normal schedule, I think we should probably go straight on to what's that you're drinking. Tim, what have you got to drink and to celebrate the, the milestone? Well, what I've got in front of me is a bottle of pink gin, which is kind of an unusual thing to drink. But this fantastic company called Pinkster have produced this just delicious raspberry gin. So they make it with um, locally grown raspberries. They only make it during the season. So... There's periods of the year they can't make it, um, and it's just fantastic. I had a um, gin tasting with them the other day with Stephen Marsh, who runs the company, and we could barely stand up at the end. But very, hmm. very huge education for me on gin through the juniper, raspberry, and all the rest of it. So, and also about spanking mint. Come again? Go, go on. What is what? Tell, tell me more. So to get, to get the oil out of the mint, you absolutely have to smack it between your hands rather than just drop it in. And the final one, Chris was round ice cubes go on which melt considerably more slowly so we have large round ice cubes and those take forever to melt because there's no corners on them is that is that one massive round ice cube or is that just lots of small ones one massive round ice cube i've seen this spherical yes absolutely i mean round they're quite you know you get these sort of silicon um trays you fill up from the top and then you sort of chuck them in but they're brilliant so we have been drinking far too much gin over the um, the last couple of weeks. We've been sort of working during the day, drinking during the night, waking up and off we go. But the gin has been fantastic. And uh, Pinkster have just been a huge supporter of the Country Food Trust as well. They've really helped us along, as you know. 
Yeah, I was going to say. I remember uh, Stephen obviously uh, su- supplied a few a few drinks uh, at the game fair when 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 the CFT was in its very early days. We were having a party one evening, so uh, no, that's, he's he's obviously been quite a big supporter. That's right. That first game fair, we swapped food, which he had none of, for <laughs> alcohol, which we had none of. So it was a, a country cattle and curry swap for gin. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a very good deal. That I, I like the idea that we're kicking off with a drink, as you say, George, to to celebrate. Uh, I think raise a glass to to Tim's achievements. Um, so uh, yeah, go on, George. What have you got for for this week? Well, in a similar vein, I have got a gin and tonic, which isn't terribly exciting. I can't even tell you what gin it is, but it's very nice. That's a poor effort. Well, it's because I'm a sophisticated sort of bloke, and it's in a decanter, and I can't remember what I put in the decanter. Uh, it was a while ago, so it could be anything. I think it's most likely boring old Bombay. And when you say decanter, do you mean uh, crystal decanter? Of course. Don't get me started on those, uh, having spent a lot of time reading about the impact of lead and and the differences between lead and lead in game and all that rubbish. But crystal decanters, honestly, if you compare that to lead shot, we're onto something else. So uh, anyway, moving swiftly on. Chris, come on then, what have you got? So I have, I've moved away. So the last few times I've had beers and ciders. Today, I have a Kings and Tonic. Uh, and this is, for me, it's a bit of a drink of the future, even though it's a very old drink. So a lot of you will know Kings Ginger, but... A lot of people think of it as just sort of like a, a winter warmer, which is what it was originally made for. I think Berry Brothers made it for, they were the ones that created this drink for, I think it was Edward VII, riding out and uh, early in the morning and uh, as a winter warmer. But anyway, as a sort of, it's it's slightly heavier than a normal gin and tonic. So it's great when it's not like peak of the summer and it's lovely in the winter. Uh, and I think it's a bit of a drink of the future. So there you go, Kings and Tonic. That sounds really good. I have to try one of those. I think I've got some King's Ginger floating about somewhere. Yeah, no, but not not many people have tried it with tonic. So yeah, definitely encourage it. Excellent. Well, as you say, I think it's a perfect opportunity to raise a glass. Yeah. Virtually uh, to Tim and the the Country Food Trust. And Tim, this is probably a good moment for you to give us a little bit of the the history and the backstory of the Country Food Trust and and tell us how you've got to where you've got to today. Sure, no, absolutely, will do. And uh, thank you very much indeed. Um, Chris, obviously, is uh, one of our trustees, or not obviously, but I should tell people that he is. Chris is one of the first people that sort of came on the scene and will remember me going with some desperation, great, someone to help, and probably being on the phone with him every day. (laughs) So uh, when we we started this off... um, Back in actually, the first conversation was 2014. I was still working in the city, um, and Andrew Stone and Sebastian Green from Gloucestershire had came up with this idea and asked if I'd like to run it. It was a fairly lonely start as we tried to work out what to do, and we took many, many false turns from delivering pheasants in the feather to people in need, obviously not a good idea, to being a processor ourselves, obviously not a good idea. A lot of these things being, if I was coming out of the city and working with the FSA. And move or the, now the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. The last thing I really wanted to do was start working with the Food Standards Agency. <laughs> so um, most of it, a lot of change in that period. And Chris came on in very early days. And as I said, if anybody at that time offered any help, they were sort of hooked into and never let go. And uh, I think Chris has probably have a, a little bit more time off in in current years, but the first few years would never let go. Of. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, look, you you're you work harder than anyone else I know. I think that's sort of a known thing in our office, actually, uh, if you if you ask anyone else. Uh, and honestly, this is such credit to you for for this mis, uh, this milestone. Yeah, I, I love the conversations in the early days. I think that's the sort of, for me, that was like 
the most fun aspect of just you know what can we do all the different ideas that have been thrown around as you were saying like to to get to this point and it's it's been really interesting the growth certainly this year and and coronavirus has definitely helped with that but um uh in terms of people's sort of appetite and realization that feeding people in need is is obviously a such key importance uh but the, the early days all those conversations we had god thinking back on it now like can you imagine if if we'd said oh we we'll be talking on in may 2020 about feeding a million people it's amazing no i think i think that's right i mean to give you an idea i was looking back over some of the original emails we had this idea of turning up in a truck collecting birds from a chute putting them through it sort of plucking them in the truck putting them down a tube into a free... I mean, it was just insane. And actually, as you um, know what we do now, we have a third-party manufacturer. So we buy our meat from game dealers. That's really important to make sure that we have people looking after the game properly at the beginning of the cycle. We have a third-party manufacturer who makes the product for us. um, And in that way, the FSA is dealt with by other people. And we don't have to become experts in that. So really, we became much more virtual after a while. You remember, Chris, that we sort of started off with these ideas and then we moved towards... We raise money, we buy meat, and we distribute through a number of a huge number of charities, eighteen hundred in total. But really, through about four or five main redistribution charities, uh, people like Fair Share, um, the Felix Project, City Harvest, UK Harvest, and um, His Church, a new one that's in the news a lot at the moment. Yeah. So that's where we changed to, and it's 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 you know it's gone it's it's gone full steam ahead. But if I tell you in the first year we delivered twenty thousand meals. And yesterday we delivered twenty six thousand <laughs> in one day. Righty. It'll give you some concept of how we've got more efficient, but also people have been incredibly generous through this current cycle. Uh, we were celebrating, or we don't really use the word celebration, as you'll understand, given what, what we're trying to do. But we had a a meeting in January to say thank you to everyone who'd helped for five hundred thousand, and we've done five hundred thousand in just over two months it's unreal isn't it and yeah it's incredible ramping up of things really and 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 it's amazing how to see and and not just with the country food trust but all sorts of other campaigns that have been running recently how the general public have and and in particular i suppose that the shooting community have really kind of rallied around there's loads of examples of of shooting brands uh or countryside brands making PPE and and all that sort of thing going on as well, and it's really encouraging to see that from our from our community in particular. Don't you think? I, I think what it is from our point of view is um, that actually, if you looked at the example of Captain Tom, everybody wanted to give to the NHS, and they just didn't quite know where to go with it. So he became a lightning rod for people's desire to help the NHS generally. And I think we have pretty much done the same thing. We were we've been on the scene for five years. Um, we had a trustees meeting just before lockdown and said, we've got to do something here. The trustees were very quick off the mark. And um, Karen and I, there's only one other person who works for this charity apart from me. So we are incredibly tight in terms of numbers. But we have amazing trustees, ambassadors and key supporters. Um, But essentially, the two of us with a couple of other people, Sebastian Newell and Jamie Green, just went for it. And as the money came in, we spent it. And we put a new production run in, which our manufacturers managed to do within a month. And normally we need two or three months. The game dealers helped us get meat in place. Everybody wanted us to, to, to succeed on this. And it's been a phenomenal, well, it's been a phenomenal six weeks, frankly. But I think Karen and I particularly, along with a number of other people, are fairly tired now. Yeah, you're you're going to need a rest shortly, aren't you? We'll probably, we'll probably take the bank holiday on uh, Friday. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, it's absolutely deserved. And uh, I'm looking forward to a sort of trustees regroup to uh, to plan the next sort of phase. But I think I think what's really interesting about certainly the social media coverage as well is, and it reminds me of the early days of Guns on Pegs in terms of people starting to go, oh, oh look, I understand what these guys do now. And it's just the momentum. It's the real snowball effect, isn't it? And I think that's been emphasised certainly in the last couple of months. Yeah, I think that's right, Chris. And you, uh, Guns on Pegs have been amazing. You've helped us, as you well know, but also... You've had um, one of your first podcasters on, Tim Adams, who, who sort of came towards us and said, yep, give you a hand. And even though he's got a lot on his plate, just could not be more helpful at a time when he had quite a name um, for having been at River Cottage. He was really able to publicise what we're doing and also advise us, as you know, he's got very strong advice. I mean, terrible drinking habits. <laughs> very strong advice. It's, it's worth picking up, isn't it? Uh, I think you, you've heard his selection. Of, you heard his his drink choice uh, on the podcast, didn't you? I think that was a moment of utter desperation. <laughs> that was a massive appeal by Tim Adams for people to send booze in his direction. <laughs> it was poor, it was pathetic, and I wasn't falling for it at all. I enjoy talking about Tim without him having the right to respond. It's quite fun, isn't it? <laughs> so much more fun. <laughs> I feel like it's my duty at this point to say that um, Tim has actually started his own podcast of late, so he's obviously been inspired by Guns on Pegs. So, um, I really do go and check that out as well. It's, it's very interesting, so um, everybody go and, go and have a listen to that. But also, go and have a listen to the episode of our podcast with Tim Adams, uh, in which he he creates a drink called sheer desperation out of whatever he has lying around at home. And you should listen to it, even if it's only so that you don't repeat the mistakes that he's made. <laughs> Tim, I'm quite keen to, uh, to, obviously, you've got a bit of a background in shooting uh, by, by association, obviously getting involved a bit. You're, tell me, what what aspect of shooting is it that really gets you going? Well, I sort of came to shooting fairly late compared to a lot of people. I grew up abroad, so you didn't sort of wander around with a gun, or it was quite difficult to do so. Um, so I sort of came to shooting around the age of 19 or 20. Um, and for most of my early shooting was a very small beat one, shoot one, um, shoots down in, um, in Dorset where my parents lived, um, which was fabulous fun. But I think the thing I re- I've always really enjoyed is I've always enjoyed beating. And maybe it came from that. But when... When I moved, when I met a couple of people um, through the city, when I worked in the city, who sort of owned grouse laws and very kindly invited me up, I quite often sort of beat for a day and shot for a day. And for me, there is nothing like beating the long part of a drive on a, on a grouse moor. I mean, first of all, these extraordinary gamekeepers who sort of amble and run through the heather and up and down the peat hags. I mean, it's a serious, serious bit of exercise. So I love that. But also that whole thing of moving those birds slowly, slowly forward. And then finally, when you look at the line and you can't see, this is quite a strange one. It really taught me quite a lot about shooting the other way around. The best shots you never see till you almost stumble into the butts. The worst shots are standing up way above. You can see them for miles away. The birds split and they go, (laughs) nope, they all split over me again. (laughs) Go on on then, name drop a couple while you're at it. Well, I, I suppose um, just I, I haven't shot on very many moors, but the moor that I shoot on is frequented by um, the uh, the Percy brothers, and I think there's a sort of name of a Percy sandwich between <laughs> Duke and, and Lord James. And I've certainly beat towards um, the Duke in a bus, and you never see him; you literally can't see where he is, apart from um, all the birds flying towards the space where he obviously isn't, and that is where he obviously is. So um, he's a phenomenal shot and well-renowned. I'm I'm singling him out and his brother out, but I'm sure there are plenty of other good shots. And certainly I've had my eye wiped on many occasions with my rather amateur efforts. 
it's really interesting what you say about beating. I mean, obviously, a lot of people who've grown up shooting will have been in a beating line long before they ever held a gun. And that's certainly true for myself. And I feel like it should be a rite of passage for, for guns of whatever age that, that they spend some time in the beating line. Because yeah, I think if you turn up on a, a, a relatively large driven day and you get ferried around in a gun bus and you stand on the peg, shoot a few birds, have a big lunch and go home, it's very easy to uh, not really know what it is that it takes to get those birds over the peg and and what a sort of almost a military scale operation it can be particularly if you're bringing in lots of ground for partridges or as you say grouse that it's it's not simply a question of thrashing your way through a wood and making as much noise as possible there's a lot more to it than that and it takes a lot of effort and a lot of care it's almost an art form isn't so it? while we're on the we're on the topic then of keepers that probably deserve a bit of a uh, bit of praise uh, i i think they, I, i'm sure you've got one or two from the uh, the grouse moss tim it, on that exact point it reminds me of um of toby and mary up at the isle of muck who uh you know when you, when you think about the effort that goes in these guys I, i've always found this just absolutely unbelievable so it's a lovely island off the west coast of scotland and you'd be sitting at breakfast having just you know massive fry up after a probably quite heavy night the night before and just as you're sort of finishing breakfast they're already out the door off to sort of go and blank in the first drive and by the time you've made it to your peg mary's up on the top of the hill bringing the birds around and all the rest of it and it's just quite unbelievable the amount of effort that goes in and on a especially in scenery and an like an island off the west coast where it's just rugged and huge amount of ground to cover just just unbelievable so no doubt you've got some pimil- uh, people similar to that tim on from the grouse moors well i think i think there's a couple of things i'd say i mean the keepers on the moors are an extraordinary breed of people i mean nick wormsley who looks after weirdale is the most staggeringly interesting man and one of the most joyous times i spent with him as we i went up in april i was traveling up to scotland to do some work for the country food trust and i dropped in to see him and he said do you want to come and see the um come and see the fledgling birds and the young birds out and the young grouse and he drove me around at five o'clock in the morning and we saw the most phenomenal birds. We saw, you know, uh, grey hens with chicks. We saw um, curlews with chicks, like little pterodactyls. And, you know, the keeper's love of their moors and knowledge of their moors is quite unbelievable, as well as the red grouse as well. But um, so there was that side of it, which is fascinating. The other side with him was once sitting up on the side of a drive and him explaining what was going to happen with the birds as the lines came in. He said, They'll lift, they'll go, they'll drop, they'll lift, they'll go. These ones will fly through. And it's like, wow, you know, his knowledge and understanding after 30 odd years on that moor for me was just, I mean, I would rather be listening to him talking about what was going on in many ways than actually standing in the bus. Absolutely phenomenal. That's such an experience, sitting on the side of a drive and watching yeah. it from up high and at a distance. Yeah, absolutely. It was rather a misty day as well. So it was, it was a really extraordinary experience. Because and, and I think a lot of people who go and shoot, whether they're shooting lowland or upland, don't get a chance to sit with a keeper and understand it's really such an art. I mean, it's science with art, isn't it? Getting it right. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. George, who have you got? You must have someone in mind that springs to mind when talking like this. Well, I mean, most of my shooting happens on the family farm shoot at, at home, and it's not what you would call a professional operation at all. <laughs> and our team of beaters are. Um, uh, vary from from very enthusiastic and not terribly skilled to completely the other way around. But the the thing that really strikes me uh, last season we had a couple of days in October when it was absolutely hosing it down, and we do shoot mostly partridges, so they're mostly out in the open, 
and it's a couple of really grim days and just the level of dedication it takes to turn out when you could be sitting inside watching telly watching football focus or something on a Saturday morning to turn out in that weather and get absolutely soaked to the bone walk miles and um, potentially have the you know the biggest cover your partridges go the wrong way <laughs> yeah which could mean that no nothing goes over the guns at all where we are um you know it just takes a huge amount of of dedication and passion and and love for what's going on love for being outdoors for the whole event um and so i just i you know i always want to to credit those guys who who allow me to get a bit of shooting every year so, so they allow the shooting itself but your mates and everything else allows for the sort of raucous weekend well as we like to call in the office now uh the a straightforward shooting weekend <laughs> uh, after a certain someone made that line rather famous o- on that point then uh tim la- last raucous slash straightforward shooting weekend it's always, it's always a sort of a bit of a strange thing to me that people who shoot go out and meet the night before and do themselves incredible damage <laughs> and then go out for a rather expensive day with the most awful hangovers but I remember one some time ago, we used to have a sort of roving syndicate down in the southwest. We went down and shot in this extraordinary shoot called Punnel, which is spelt Punk Knoll, down in Dorset, which is right near the sea. And we were there for a couple of days. And um, on the actual day we shot, the snow started coming down and we all had fairly good hangovers. But the snow started coming down. It's the only time I've ever shot in heavy falling snow where those birds were being covered, even despite the warmth, were being covered. And um, at the end of that day, we um, couldn't get the cars out the very steep hill out towards um, Bridport. And we all ended up staying um, back there for one more time. And, you know, if you've got a slight hangover lingering, another session on the booze really sorts it out, I think. <laughs> especially, especially when it all hold up and you can't, those are the yeah. best occasions, aren't they? When you can't get out, no one else has got any other plans. It's like, well, what do we do? We might as well just stand at the bar. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's exactly what we did. <laughs> yeah, and we, we had uh, our last day at home this year was sort of the, the, the youngsters day. I think all the guns were under 35 with me being the old man of the bunch. And um, the shoot lunch finished at 11.30 which I thought in the evening, I should point out. Uh, so I thought that was pretty good going. Um, we had to resupply on wine a couple of times, raiding the cellar. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, it didn't feel great the next day. Yeah, we, we have a, a, a mate of mine uh, up in uh, in Norfolk, uh, very similar sort of scenario, actually. We, uh, <clears throat> we go up for a bit of a wild day. Uh, we've had some epic wild days, sort of 150 head walked up, uh, various bits of flighting, uh, early morning flight, evening flight. It's just absolutely amazing. But uh, a whole bunch of uh, mates, uh, mostly young farmers back in the day. Uh, so you know what I mean by slightly different breed. And uh, we, we go... <laughs> What are you saying about people from Norfolk, Chris? My mum's from Norfolk. No, they actually, uh, most most of the lads make, make their way up from Essex. They're all Essex young farmers, but they... Uh, they, it's it's the pub the night before and I, it, it's always such a mistake isn't it because that's always quite a late one and then the alarm goes at six for like first light flight and uh and you just regret everything so quickly but i suppose when you look back it makes it and it's it's part of the fun isn't it that you you put yourself through that but all worth it yeah and it sounds it sounds counterintuitive but it slightly um sharpens the mind as well when you're aware that not all your senses are functioning quite as they should do you do concentrate a bit harder oh definitely yeah i used to um shoot with a friend he was always the last at the bar every night 
and the thing he always did was get himself dressed in his shooting gear before he went to bed. <laughs> and so when you wanted to go wake him up in the morning, he'd be lying there fully clothed on top of his bed, ready to go. <laughs> it was a rather odd sight, gun clasp, you know, sometimes even cartridge belt around his waist. And off he got and off he went. <laughs> To that, in, in, the, in a total reverse of that, it reminds me of a scenario actually up at the Isle of Muck. Uh, we, we got up for the early morning flight and um, uh, we were all standing out there, uh, you know, just literally just stuck whatever clothes on you could. Got out, total dark, right on the foreshore. Geese and the ducks are coming in. And uh, I was with a mate of mine who was just the other side of this sort of splash area. Actually, I'll name him. Uh, shame him in this instance a guy called Ed Delarue used to work for the game fair a few years ago and he fell asleep during the flight with his dog on him at like uh like a duvet just keeping him keeping him warm uh and I was loosing off some uh some goose cartridges like full-blown threes quite not not that far from him and he still didn't wake up we went back for breakfast and we had to then fire a shot from the lodge over the foreshore to try and see if he could wake the dog up because when the dog woke up it then moved him and he woke up but he was asleep on the foreshore for about half an hour but that was after a busy night that's brilliant. Uh, talking about the chap who who's, who slept in his shooting gear, it's not shooting related, but uh, shout out to my mate Toby Clowes, who I play cricket with, who uh, variously turns up to cricket matches either in his pyjamas or in his dinner jacket, <laughs> which I think show fairly good dedication as well. Excuses? I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's some excuses knocking around. I, sh- I, should have, uh, I should have teed you up before to give you a bit of a, a heads up on those. Was this excuses for bad shooting? I mean, obviously, whilst you're on the subject of hangovers, I mean that's a pretty good one. But there's, <laughs> what what others come to mind? No, I mean, my, I'm normally excusing my own shooting rather than listening to other people's excuses. <laughs> I tend to go with the straightforward. I'm sorry, I'm just terrible at this. But it is extraordinary, isn't it, when you shoot how you can have such a good drive, and then you're sort of everything builds up. You think, oh, I'm on it, and then be completely put in your place on the next drive. I've never, I've never really got used to that up and down of shooting, and you just as soon, or you can even have great days, or even great weeks, or, or months, or something, but inevitably there always comes that day when it doesn't quite work. Absolutely, George. George, do you want to talk about the last day of the season for you? Well, I, the last day of the, oh that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I had a couple of nice ones. I did have a fairly stinking hangover. It has to be said. <laughs> uh, this was um, uh, at uh, a place in uh, Shropshire, wasn't it, um, where the Guns on Pegs team and, and a few premium members went to go and do a bit of a video shoot and that video will be coming out fairly soon. Keep an eye out for it. Uh, but yeah, we did have a bit of a big night in the pub the night before and um, I wasn't feeling wonderful. Uh, and I managed, we, I was sharing a peg with with Digby and Alex and managed to, to put my uh, my drive off until the third one of the day. So I was feeling slightly better. And I did have a couple of nice birds there. I'm not sure what you're kind of trying to say, Chris. No, you did. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, it's just, it was, it was, it was the vocals on the peg that I enjoy. <laughs> uh, you know, the bang, bang, the bang, bang bugger, but then the awesome one out the edge. Yeah. Uh, I can't repeat what I said after that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you did shoot, you did shoot well in fairness. One of the, one of the great stories actually at my age is I now have a son who shoots. And there's just nothing. He's 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 a young chap. He's eighteen, but very rarely we get drawn together. And Chris, you and I were on a shoot uh, last season where he came along, and I have to work very very hard to wipe his eye, and he quite frequently wipes mine. But I'm merciless. If I ever get a chance of dropping one near him, I will always give it a go. But last time on this particular shoot, we I shot a bird and it 
and he was a back gun and it landed so close to him and as it was coming towards him I had that awful feeling that I was going to really do damage and he just looked at me and then shot the next three birds in front of me so. <laughs> <laughs> But he's, he's that, the wonderful thing about 18-year-olds is they don't need excuses because they have none of those hang-ups that we have. You know, they haven't learned the problem yet. They just point the gun, shoot, and off they go. And get on with it, yeah. Highly irritating. You've got to teach them a lesson or two. That's pretty unacceptable. Yeah, you, you, do, you do have to, but it's whether you can. <laughs> it, it, it reminds me of the time that uh, my grandpa uh, shot a cock pheasant and landed it on my dad's dog. And my dad was absolutely hopping mad. And for some reason, my grandpa, uh, the dog was all right, by the way, but uh, for some reason, my dad, my grandpa just found it quite funny. And I remember him turning around, just just sort of flicking his V sign that he used to do, I mentioned before, uh, at my uh, at my dad. And dad literally just, yeah, going spare. Grandpa just thought it was absolutely brilliant. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the whole generational competition thing definitely comes out. Because you, you, you were talking last time about having three generations, were you? Yeah. When you were the young. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That must be quite something. I never achieved that, but... Yeah, imagine that's great. De- definitely, I'm going to try and make sure later in life that uh, if uh, if I have a little one, that they make it out with uh, with dad and myself one day. Yeah, that's that was seriously fond memories from uh, from a few years back. That's actually sort of how we how we got going guns on pegs as a result of that. Really, it was the fun that we had that just made us enjoy it so much that ended up falling into it. Because there's, there's something very special. You're shooting with really close friends. I mean, we all shoot sometimes on days where you're invited where you don't know everyone particularly well, but when you know really well the people with the amount of banter, the abuse, the deliberate poaching, the the awful behaviour, it just makes days, I mean, absolutely cracking. Because quite often we all know the shot over your neighbour is a better shot than the one in front or or a harder shot, and it's just great fun. So I love it when we're really close mates. And if it's Tim Adams and it's front of him, then it's even better, isn't it? That is a particularly loud shot. I think there's, an, <laughs> there's a rule in the book somewhere to allow you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> have you uh, have you got any days in for next season, Tim? Is it? Uh, it's not not a lot like here around. I don't actually, and um, I suppose um, um, I used to I used to shoot quite a few days before this job. Strangely, everyone thought they said to me, you know. If you do this job, of course, you'll be shooting a lot. And we don't feel sorry for you. You don't. And you don't for a number of reasons. We're sort of quite busy, a bit like you, I suppose. We're quite busy during the season, mm. um, making sure it's all working, make sure our production's um, running okay. We normally run a winter appeal because we're sort of saying to people who shoot, look, you're out there probably overindulging, as we've been discussing, um, not just on the booze, but on the food. And at the same time you're doing that in the cold, people are really having a tough time. And we're not trying to make it miserable for people, but I think a lot of people who who shoot um, accept that you know they're in a fairly fortunate position when they're standing on a peg. So generally speaking, we're normally pretty busy. I think the other thing, as I said to you before, Chris, I have a rather badly behaved dog, and you know, I'm very happy with my badly behaved dog um, to go out and sort of do some. I think picking up would be exaggerating what we do, but um, <laughs> running around and sort of having a good time, and and just and I love watching. So. I watch a lot of shooting and do that, but um, I have I have the odd day. Do you know what I think? I think that that you shouldn't be. Ash- no one should ever be ashamed of a of a badly behaved gun dog. I think there's something beautiful about it. We used to have a border terrier who loved being in the beating line, and he would chase the first bird that got up out of the drive all the way to the line of guns. If it was shot, he'd run up to it, look at it, and kind of go so there. And then he'd turn around and run all the way back up to the beating line, birds going in every direction. And it was just a joy to behold. He absolutely loved it. He thought it was the best thing ever. Don't, don't you think a badly behaved 
a badly behaved dog works slightly better when it's the owner's badly behaved doctor rather than the guests, though. Yeah, when it when it's running into the drive with the corkscrew round its neck still. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and with that frantic calling going on behind, and we'll we'll pick her up. Like like the old Fenton video in in uh, yeah. in Richmond Park. <laughs> Look, I think I think it's. Uh, a good place to sort of revisit back to the start really and just uh and 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 wrap things up but i i'm really keen obviously we, we've got a trustees meeting coming up at the end of the month but i'm really keen tim to sort of hear about a little bit of a sort of a loose uh insight into vision for the future and, and sort of where things might go from here uh now that this sort of success is of the cft is really really picked up and the, and the awareness is out there yeah i think it's um it's, it will come as no surprise to you that since lockdown um, the population of people in food poverty, which was estimated at about 8 million, we haven't really got a handle on how much it's gone up. But one, you know, if you're listening to the Trussell Trust, who do most of the food banks, they're talking about 80%. If you're talking to his church, that you're talking about six times. Really? Um, or the demand for any charity helping is huge. And of course, the NHS as well is being helped by a lot of people who are helping them with food, getting it into the um, COVID wards where people don't have time to come out, get out of their PPE. So there's a lot of demand on food. And, of course, the other thing going backwards was we had um, the hoarding, which is a sort of natural behaviour by people when they have food insecurity. Um, And that took a lot of food out of the normal pipeline, which goes on to charities to help people in need. I I always thought that that slight feeling of food insecurity was kind of an interesting one. We probably all had it. It may not have just been loo roll. It may have been the food. And you think that for... Over 8 million, maybe 10, 12 million people now. That food insecurity feeling is an everyday thing. It's not because the food's not there. It's literally because they can't afford it. And, you know, thousands of people are falling into that sort of no money trap. So for us, um, my, the chairman, um, who you know well, Chris, and the founding trustee both said, jolly well done, off we go, 2 million, please. So we, we, have, a, we have a job to do. Um, and I think the other thing we've started doing, because um, I think you've been mentioning about next season a bit, is that if a lot of shoots aren't shooting, and, and you've talked about the numbers, a number of shoots aren't shooting, then the number of pheasants and partridge are going to be noticeably less. Um, there seems to be fairly good demand outside. So it may well be we have to look at other things. So Chris, I was talking to you uh, the other day about deer. Um, we're talking about, I mean, certainly in the last three or four weeks, We've been using whatever we can get our hands on to help people because this is not a time for us to be sitting there and saying, we only do pheasant. Um, there's not a lot of pheasant out there left in the field. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that one unfolds. But um, I'm sure it's one of those things where there's a will, there's a way, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. But we, we, have, we have a lot of people. We have a lot of people in demand. We have a lot of people now helping us. You know, our reach on social media has grown. And I think the countryside community, and not just them, the broader community, I've been incredible support, incredibly supportive, and um, I think we have the capability to keep on um, helping those people who are in such, such desperate need. Yeah, well, from George and myself and, and Guns on Pegs team, absolutely, and everyone, I suppose, just so well done to you, Karen, uh, and, and the team and everyone that's helped along the way, and, and most of all, I suppose, to, to the donors um, to, who, who've enabled this target to be reached. Um, looking forward to the two million then. Um, put myself under immediate pressure. Now. <laughs> and we, we, we will we will crack on, and uh, we'll we'll keep going. But thank you, thank you to you, um, Guns on Pegs. You've been extraordinary. I mean, a lot of it's getting knowledge out there because, as you know, the shooting fraternity is quite difficult 
difficult to communicate with en masse. So your help getting out to them has been fantastic. So many thanks. More to come. Good. Well, look, thanks very much for coming on. Uh, and uh, yeah, look, look forward to look forward to the to the meeting in a few weeks' time. Thanks very much, Chris. Yeah, no, uh, just to reiterate that, thanks ever so much for joining us, Tim, and, and huge congratulations. For everybody listening, that just about wraps it up for this episode. We really hope you've enjoyed it and, and that you can share in our joy uh, for what Tim has uh, achieved and the rest of the Country Food Trust team. Thanks once again for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, do let us know in the comments below. And if you have any thoughts on uh, anything that we've talked about, do feel free to leave a comment as well. And if there's anything fun or interesting, we'll probably share it in the next episode. If you don't already, do subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Game Card, for all the latest uh, articles and content and shooting availability. Uh, you can do that at gunsonpegs.com. And you can give us a follow on Instagram at gunsonpegs or find us on Facebook. Uh, so until next time, thanks very much for listening again and goodbye.